0: have this aspect where you get high degrees of interdependence. We start getting aspects of shared risk, shared reward coming into play and trying to find out um, in a highly interdependent relationship that I am so reliant on this partner that I can't do without them. So the organization's almost become uh, married. And yes, they could come, you know, get divorced, but they'd be so painful if they did. So you see this spectrum uh, of relationships emerging from the highly transactional to the highly interdependent. And when you get into those interdependent relationships, that's where the value generation is occurring.
1: Hello, I'm Brittany Campbell-Turner, and this is The Constructor Podcast, episode number 38. Hello, and welcome to Constructor, the best way to build it. This podcast is dedicated to helping property owners have certainty in their decisions about their construction projects. We talk about fostering trusting relationships within your project teams, helping you understand how to lower risk and be under budget and on schedule in your projects, and most importantly, exceed your end users' desires. My talk today is with Jeff Saunders. He is the director at Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. He talks with us about the work he does at the Institute and some of the major research he's done on the future thinking for work. We dig into megatrends, the future of outsourcing and co sourcing as the independent co sourcing model. Lastly, We talk about the eight challenges for the future and how to navigate through these challenges. There's so much value packed into this interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jeff Saunders. Welcome to the Constructor Podcast, Jeff. We're happy to have you on this morning and afternoon over there in Denmark.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, having a great conversation.
1: Yes, me too. So first of all we want to know who is Jeff Saunders. Yeah you're you're currently the director at Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. But let us know a little bit about your background um, how did you even get there
0: future studies back in 2007 after I had moved to uh, Denmark from um, living in the United States and I'd previously in the United States been working with a lot of issues related to a uh, future of geopolitical and strategic issues and then I've done a lot of work uh, foresight and future studies work in that regard and then when I was in Denmark you know I through network and happenstance I found out that the Institute was looking for a profile similar to mine. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up at the, uh, the Institute and then worked my way up over the years into um, having the director uh, position related to our strategy and innovation
1: department. Wonderful. You've been doing a lot of research while there. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, um, particularly.
0: Well, the Institute is a... Um, interdisciplinary organization um, that works with a variety of different um, organizations. So we have uh, specialists that range from a a wide variety of academic um, and professional backgrounds because there's a multi-perspective view for the future and an explorative view to the future that we bring to the work that we do. And we uh, work with a number of different types of organizations looking about what Opportunities and challenges lie in the future, and how they could best be prepared for a multiple or a number of range range of futures. So we work with public organizations, government ministries, departments, uh, municipalities, and the like. We work with private organizations. These could be Fortune 100 companies and above, or it could be um, smaller organizations as well. We work with non-governmental institutions, labor unions, and Employer Association. So we're typically working with a broad range of different um, organizations about what is it that is affecting their contextual environment or their, their strategic environment, and then asking the question or uh, the questions related to who uh, is best advantaged or positioned to take advantage of the opportunities or who is most threatened by these futures. And then we help them um, navigate what's their best strategic position to try to uh, achieve.
1: That's just so fascinating to me. I I really love the approach of pretty much getting prepared for the future and, and navigating you know the best way to, to succeed as a business. And you guys really have a broad gamut of different companies that you work with. So you really have an interesting perspective because you're learning from each company type and whether it's governmental or what have you, you you definitely can come to each each company with with perspective from so many different points of view.
0: Yeah, so we're we're understanding, you know, from a different perspective. What are, you know, what is the what's challenging senior management? How what are the challenges that employees are having in different organizations related to who are the customers, uh, how are different trends and influencing factors, drivers of change impacting consumer demands or citizen demands what is it that um be prepared for what are the potential disruptions that could emerge that's a very buzzy word right now but what are the things that they need to be prepared for and what different developments could mean in future in in terms of their future competitive environment these are all these things that we try to bring to bear and highlight for organizations around the world
1: yeah so that Gives you actually the opportunity to work with a number of organizations, particularly the ISS. You've been working with for what seven years? Uh,
0: yes, close. Yeah, seven years. We've been working with ISS World Services. So they're based, headquartered out of Copenhagen, Denmark, or out of Cervo, um, which is just the north of Copenhagen. And they're uh, the world's uh, largest facility management provider and integrated facility services provider and in the world. They have something like five hundred thousand employees.
1: 500,000 employees is, is amazing. But that in, a, in addition to the number of companies with the different perspectives that, you know, you're, you're looking at the end user experience with them and, and how to provide better services and prepare for, for future, you have the perspective of working with ISS, who also likely wants to know the same thing, the future of facility management and understanding ultimately what to expect, you know, a few years down the line.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that was the basis for a series of, of white books where, you know, ISS and the Copenhagen Institute uh, went together and started looking at what, is, what are the major drivers of change globally, what we call megatrends, that are shaping uh, the facility management industry? How does that impact what their customers are, you know, n- you know, needing to have service? What are their pains? What are the potential gains that they're looking to achieve? How does it ultimately impact the end user? And so, uh, you know, use these buildings and facilities that ISS services and other service. And so we started a journey back in 2009, 2010, looking at what were the major drivers affecting the facility management industry. That led to a beginning of analysis 2011 about what were the new ways of working that were emerging, that were being driven by automation automation greatest revolutions in digital technologies, globalization, and the like. And how would that impact how organizations prepare their employees and use space in the future to support what their employees are doing, how do they express their brands around it, and then um, ultimately what services are required from facility managers. And so this process over the years has looked at a variety of areas affecting the facility management, corporate real estate space. So looking at how will, be people, how will organizations and people be working in the future? How will they be collaborating with partners to solve challenges? And how could FM and corporate real estate providers work with others to deliver value for their customers? What is it that end users ultimately need to be supported? So you've had the last several years of focus on several decades of focus on activity-based working. But now we see that that's not enough just to look at the functional aspects, but also that people are looking for experience or looking to fulfill what we call the immaterial values, a sense of belongingness with an organization, a sense of social uh, connectedness with the people that they're working with. And they want to have fun, be inspired. And the workplaces are transitioning from a place where, Hey, you can work in many places in many spaces after your individual choice and what you feel you know best supports you. So, what is it that attracts people to the workspace? And what can the corporate real estate and facility managers providers do to make the workplace something that's attractive for people to come? And that requires taking an entirely new perspective, which is focusing on the end user perspective and for a very technical a normally very technical field of facility management with people with engineering backgrounds, how do they go in and start applying an end-user perspective using insights from anthropology, ethnographics, data sciences, and the like to actually understand what is it that triggers end-users in the spaces that they're using? Mm -hmm.
1: I I love that it's really almost blurring the lines between facilities management and HR and IT and security and your food vendor services you know like <laughs> it's it's ultimately <laughs> just it's just one of those things that keep coming up it's about it's about how do you approach space so that ultimately everyone has the happiest experience coming in so i want to i want to understand a little bit more about the mega trends that you you described Earlier, I understand from a presentation that you've done that there are 14 of them. I mean, you don't have to hit on all of them, but just want to have a, a sense of what what are mega trends and w- what what do they look like for the future. I guess
0: yeah, well, the institute has developed over the years. I mean, the institute's been around since uh, 1969. So over the 48 years that it's existed, we've developed a number of tools and methods within future studies, and one of them was megatrends. And megatrends are aggregations uh, of trends that we are have a high degree of certainty will happen in the future and for a long period of time into the future. So there are elements of the future that we could be relatively certain or highly certain will occur. And they're things that are broad in scope and have significant impact on society. We like to say you can't hide from a megatrend. So there are things related to Aspects of economic growth, aspects related to technological development, we're relatively sure that technological development, economic growth will continue. You could have a discussion about how much, how deep, and when different developments will occur. But by and large, you know, these developments have been occurring for hundreds or even thousands of years, and we're very certain that they will continue to go along. There's other aspects, and they're you know, relatively easy to measure. There's other aspects of megatrends, for example, something like individualization, individualization, we're highly certain it's occurring. You look at uh, consumer preferences and things like that. Everybody, um, people look for services and the desire to express themselves in increasingly granular and tailored ways. And so while that's harder to measure discreetly, you know, we're highly certain that that has an impact and it has an impact upon how organizations want their services from their providers. They want tailor-made services. But if you also look at consumers and end users, they want individualized services as well. And if you look at issues related to commercialization and other aspects, you know, consumers have liquid expectations. So the services and experiences that get in one area get spread over into other areas. So these are some of these factors. And we have 14 megatrends that we work with that we bring to bear on our different processes to talk about. And help organizations understand what are they certain about will happen in the future. What do they need to prepare for so that they understand what they're certain about and what they're uncertain about. And then focus on the ones that will have the most impact for their organization and try to develop solutions for dealing with those.
1: I wanted to list out the 14 megatrends so you know what they are. I'm also including the link in the show notes for you. So look out for them there commercialism, sustainability, polarization, democratization, acceleration, complexity, economic growth, technology development, immaterialism, network society, globalization, individualization, focus on health, and demographic development. We'll get back to the interview. So tell us who you work with at the Copenhagen Institute. I mean, it it sounds like you work with integrated teams in order to to develop sort of this future study, explaining to them about megatrends. Tell us what that would look like. How would working with someone to identify those trends, what would that look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, we have multidisciplinary teams on our side that work together uh, to bring these various perspectives. So we have economists, we have social scientists, we have people with backgrounds in, from anthropology and sociology. But we work with, depending on the subject area, people who have expertise in health and things like that. We bring these multiple insights together with this methodology. And then on the customer side, we go into a, a co-creation process with them where it's, you know, within the organization and external subject matter. Experts where we kind of try to triangulate how these various inputs can come together and create a shared understanding of what the future and how it could be and how it could it develop.
1: Mm-hmm. So, could you give us? I, I I'm just trying to like wrap my head around what a, a specific I don't know user experience or or con- customer experience that maybe has been enhanced um, due to the co-disciplinary. Approach right on your side and on their side coming together and saying, "Hey, this is how we're going to approach business now, moving forward to en- to enhance ultimately the experiences people who enter into our space and work with us ends up being."
0: Yeah, I mean, what what we're trying to do with the organizations are is that we're trying to say everybody goes with an implicit understanding of what they think the future will be, mm-hmm. and some have an innate perspective on the future is incredibly optimistic and they see opportunity in the future. And then you have others that, you know, you tell them, talk to them about the future and they'll they'll say, it'll be more or less the same thing as today with a few extra gadgets and things like that. And then you have, um, so they can't imagine an alternative future. And then you have others who associate the future with loss. Like things in, in the good old days were better. And so what these processes You know, one aspect of these processes is to help teams within organizations to make explicit, their implicit understandings of the future. So it helps them structure their thinking about the future. What do they see as opportunities? What do they see as threats? And why do they perceive them as threats? And then, you know, it's about, so it's a tool for initiating dialogue um, internally and then also with stakeholders who go with clients and like, but it's also Trying to help reduce complexity by trying to say okay what are the key trends that we think drivers that we think are going to be shaping a particular industry a particular product or service or or a consumer group and the like and then we start um, kind of going through well, what are their implications how does it affect customer requirements how does it affect the competitive environment How does it affect the way organizations will be delivering services to either a business or a consumer in the future? And then from those, we try to understand what are the strategic implications of this. And then we try to guide organizations through a process which looks at those which have most impact on their business model or service model or or, or the like, um, so that we could sort the ones that have the least impact away from the analysis and focus on those that are most impactful. And then once we have a focus on the ones that are most impactful, we can start having an understanding of what is it that they're highly certain of. And, you know, sometimes when you start talking about and what are they uncertain of? And sometimes when you're having that dialogue related to uncertainty, many organizations, you know, start putting into the category of oh, we're highly uncertain about this is because they, you know, they have a feeling it's going to happen, but they kind of wish it wouldn't happen. So, you know, it could be, um, you know, the globalization of, you know, different types of media and media services and the like. And, you know, they could have that understanding, well, the market is already highly globalized, but they didn't see a direct peer competitor coming in. Well, the market has shifted. You have all this competition because it's a globalized market space, particularly within media, you have YouTube, you have Netflix and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you have competition that so bled into your market. You should be prepared for that so that's some of that aspect of helping people kind of understand that and then when you have a certainty of uh, an understanding about what are the key uncertainties building scenarios for understanding how could those futures develop and then guiding them through a process of what we call systemic ideation and testing where they could take either their current ideas and test it up against these alternative futures or they could go into a process say "Ooh, we see that consumers or our competitors could be behaving like this in this given scenario, what does that mean for us and what solutions could we um, develop to bring to bear to the market? And then they can go about testing what is a robust strategy that works in multiple scenarios and what are more scenario-specific concepts or business models and the like that maybe shouldn't be pursued because the risk associated with them is too high. So when we work, we talk oftentimes of, of kind of a concept or a mindset which we build from resilience, which is the proactive adaption to change, which is foresight and future studies is about building a sophisticated and robust radar about what are the key trends and drivers and potential areas of disruption that can impact you and how do you assess and monitor those on an ongoing basis so you know where potential threats can emerge and so you could plan and react so You develop a sort of a shield process, but then you don't want to be purely defensive. You want to be proactive. You want to be aggressive. You want to seize opportunities as they emerge. So how could you take up the sword and identify areas to seize and strike in the market? And so this is that kind of idea that we in concept that we want to build within the organization aspect of building a strong radar, understand what's going on in the market Building a capacity to seize advantage of uh, emerging opportunities quickly and then having the capacity to ideally sense quickly when threats are emerging and having a plan in place to react to it. And it's building that mindset within organizations is what ultimately, um, in my opinion, Future Studies is about.
1: I I liked the ideas of understanding what the key trends are to, to first pay attention to. And then understanding from their perspective what the opportunities are in the future and the threats in the future, doing that and then doing the systemic ideation, kind of giving Mm -hmm. them like the process to understand, assess, pretty much come up with that plan to, like you said, um, seize the opportunity or or put a plan in place to, to react to any potential risks. Um, if they arise. So wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. You you definitely mentioned certainty. And that's one thing that I bring people onto the podcast. I'm always talking about how do we reduce the level of uncertainty that owners have. And although I come to a lot of the times from the perspective of executing a construction project, these are the things that owners are thinking about. I mean, why are they even going to even invest In real estate, in their infrastructure, in in anything, if it's not focused on their end user experience, if it's not focused on their customers, if they're not well prepared to react to the future, right? So there's always this balance of things that are happening. um, And I think that it makes a lot of sense, the approach that the Institute is taking um, to ultimately prepare Prepare owners. I I love, I definitely love the approach. Very cool. So I do want to get into the future of outsourcing study, particularly for FM services. Tell me who was involved in that study and we'll dig into some of the things that you found out about outsourcing in the future
0: uh, yeah i had a we had a team at the institute that were working on the, the future of outsourcing and that was a collaboration again with iss with ifma and cornet global and so we had the research phase which our team at the institute was doing so we were focusing on you know how are megatrends we had talked about uh, how are they impacting the notion of outsourcing and also the various trends we were also doing a lot of work with the International Association of Outsourcing Professionals. They were also a participant in the surveys as well. And then we were also doing uh, work with subject matter experts in the field um, related to outsourcing and collaboration, looking at what were their inputs, how do they see the future developing? And it was from those perspectives that we brought together. What does it mean for the future of facility management?
1: So first of all, many different perspectives, corporate, I mean, corporate real estate, facilities management, I think there's an aspect where, again, the understanding is there's collaboration, there's integration taking place, not only just in the research and how they all all they all tap into each other ultimately, but mm-hmm. in in the results themselves, tell me how the outsourcing model is developing based upon the study.
0: Yeah, well, what we found is you know there's a number of emerging approaches to outsourcing that are occurring and collaboration that's occurring within the marketplace, and ultimately you know it's going in the direction of you know one aspect is cost, and that's when things become commoditized. Then it becomes a factor that. Cost is the key driver. But at the other end of the spectrum, you know, it's this cr- question of this interdependent relationship. And so you have outsourcing kind of developing um, and polarizing in a way. So at the one side on the, the highly transactional side, um, you see this emergence of crowdsourcing models. And that's a situation where you have what's the difference between one uber driver and the other uber driver there's tons you know just to take that one example which is commonly used or within a single source cleaning providers at um, the micro level they have an example of a company in denmark called happy which is amazon home services is another example where you have offer you know of some labor and some service and then people who require it and these people are highly interchangeable so it's a question of yes the reputation but there's many people with five-star ratings and it's a question of price. And, you know, you just kind of go with whoever nearby and handy you can do it at the time you need it and click, there you go. And that's a very transactional relationship. And the platform is the one that links the people who have a desire with the people who have the ability to offer something. And they're the ones that take a slice of the cake because they're providing the organization of that. And so, you know, outsourcing providers, you know, if they get caught the transactional relationship with their clients to easily end up being pushed down in that environment. Then you have on the other side of the spectrum more interdependent relationships that are emerging. So you start seeing kind of network solutions being put together. So you have networks of um, providers that are dealing with highly complex solutions, and they want to provide. They need to have multiple providers to provide a solution to a customer or multiple customers. And it's those networks that go in competition with each other. We're seeing that emerging. And then you have this aspect where you get high degrees of interdependence in what we call co-sourcing models. And this is um, related to uh, vested sourcing from the University of Tennessee and Kate Where you start getting aspects of shared risk, share reward coming into play and trying to find out um, in a highly interdependent relationship that I am so reliant on this partner that I can't do without them. So the organization's almost become uh, married. And yes, they could come you know, get divorced, but they'd be so painful if they did. So you see this spectrum uh, of relationships emerging from the highly transactional to the highly interdependent. And when you get into those interdependent relationships... That's where the value generation is occurring. And so as I, you know, the ideal relationship for an outsourcing provider, if you're not a platform provider, is ending up in those more interdependent relationships.
1: I appreciate the parallelism to what I happen to have talked about on the podcast multiple times with lean construction practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, or or owners who are who are wanting to do construction in a more integrative way. I mean, obviously, there's the integrated project delivery model. Mm-hmm. They establish the integrated forms of agreement, and it really does sound very similar to the co sourcing model, a uh, shared risk, shared reward model that you're describing. I haven't heard the, the lean approach, IPD. Approach as highly interdependent, but as you're describing it that way, I do also see the parallelism there. And once you establish that relationship, it is it is challenging to, like you say, unmarry, <laughs> yeah. um, because you get to a point where you're you understand so much about each other and the goals that the owner is hoping to execute for their end users for a construction project that usually ends, which is less often the case. With facilities management services. I would like to ask the question now what's the difference between traditional facilities management and what I'm understanding is now called service management? Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: You know, that's a slightly different thing than the outsourcing uh, models, but that transition between facilities management, I mean, this question of focus where you know facilities are talking about the buildings being managed and the services it's that broader perspective looking about you know not only just the buildings themselves but what about the occupants within the building and how they're doing and how they're ultimately experiencing that so you start getting into more areas of value creation you can start talking about integrated facility services integrated services And you can start linking the various elements that come into play in creating a service experience. So you start talking about, you know, how do catering, how does um, cleaning, how does all these aspects come together to actually create a service management approach? So... Then you start getting into this approach about how do you design the services, how do you understand the user needs, and then ultimately about how do you manage that service process to understand how well is it actually delivering on what was expected. And so you go from that design to management process that integrates between the two. So it's expanding the scope and the role And the type of requirements that uh, facilities, providers, corporate real estate need to have. So ultimately, they become sort of an orchestrator of different elements. And it becomes a question about what are the elements they're better in control of. So in the physical space, and if you talk about the workplace experience and service management of that, you have uh, what are the range of touch points that an organization has with its users? And typically, most businesses, if we're talking in an office context, you have dynamic spaces, Um, that could be either digital or physical. um, And you have kind of fixed, that they're always there. You know, like the building isn't a good example of a fixed space and a dynamic space could be a pop-up shop or something like that. Um, And you have that range of physical and digital. Now, facility management and corporate real estate, they can control the physical space and the dynamic and the fixed very, very well. But once it starts integrating into the digital space, then they have less ability to control. So that's a question in this process about trying to do the integrated user experience, how could they go about being the orchestrator when they're in control and then being a member of the band that hits the right notes at the right moment for their digital partners when they're in the other portion of the the spectrum? So that's an integrated, interesting challenge that's emerging in the future of work, new ways of working, and uh, service management is.
1: I know we kind of stepped away from the outsourcing question, but I... I am curious as to if the, if the facilities management uh, outsource group is in this co-sourcing model, they do, it, I do like the fact that they would have the opportunity to speak to the service management approach. I, I didn't want to get away from that because I saw the correlation I just I want to I want to see what your perspective is on that.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's for that question, because the co-sourcing approach is is this highly interdependent. So it's understanding not only um, client need, it's like, you know, what did their end users need? And that gets into that. Service management and the contact with the manager in the future will have to reduce for that they're trying to manage. So ideally, if you talk about in the co-sourcing model, you could say, you know, company X, they, you know, the works, the workplace and the workplace strategy is highly important for them to deliver on, on what they need to do to fulfill their customers' requirements. They need their employees to be highly engaged and highly motivated. They need a partner that could help them manage that process and manage it better than anybody else for them. So that partner needs to understand, okay, what are the user requirements? So what are my customers' employees' requirements? What are their work profiles? So what type of archetypes around that? What are their user journeys? What settings are they engaging in the workplace? How does that relate? to what the buyer is trying to achieve of that service. And then understanding, well, what is it that in this regard and what is it in the technology regard. And that co-sourcing approach, I mean, that is just that that aspect of building that ending among the variety of, among the partners that they're willing to open up more and more of the elements that are close to the core are actually within their core to their partner because they're not able to deliver unless their provider is also able to, to help them do it. So it's that intimate relationship.
1: Mm. Um, did, and, and Dean Kashiwagi before the, uh, the interview, he specifically mentioned that when you hire experts mm-hmm. they can see into the future, that have no confusion and it reduces your, your project. So that's why you specifically want to, to hire an expert. And so when, and they are looking at their client and their, and the end user of their ultimate clients, they, the customers, whoever it may end up being, even if it's workplace, the, the people who are working in that space, it's that expertise that, that you hope in your procurement process that they are experts and can deliver with that simplicity and vision kind of give you a sense of um, where my mindset is. I wanted to share with you guys where you can listen to my interview with Dr. Dean Kashiwagi here so you can get some context of our discussion. You can find my interview with Dr. Dean at constructor that's construct double com slash ep33. Back to the interview.
0: Yes they have insight into the future if they're the the contours but when dislocation shifts emerge, yeah, experts can give you an insight into the future. But if you have new areas of technological development, there's, a, there's risk associated with that as well. And that's just because, you know, alternative business models developed in other areas come in. So that's why in many industries, you have the established players who the expertise in doing things get completely disrupted by newcomers that come into the market because they've seen a new way of doing it, bring in new methods and approaches and technologies, and they're able to seize market share rather rapidly. So you can make the argument um, within the FM space and the corporate real estate space, that we're delivering so many uh, solutions for so many years, why the hell did they get beat out by um, upstarts like we were? And all of a sudden you have an industry that's uh, or a company that's expanded dramatically about, you know, what about their valuation? And isn't that um, inflated? And we can have all sorts of discussions around that. But they've been able to, to totally reframe the way people talk about the workplace, in the workplace, by developing a completely new approach. So, yes, experts are important, and I won't deny that. But I also say there's also a downside with experts um, and you know, cases
1: like WeWork is an example of that. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. It's definitely comprehensive. Um, I I want to ask you about challenges for the future. So with with that particular response about you know experts and to an emerging approach uh, or a disruption, or I guess lack of a better word. <laughs> um, but I I do want to talk about some of the challenges that a provider who, who has been doing things. How can they be prepared for some of those challenges and pivot?
0: The key aspects is been um, affecting providers is this need for resilience and agility for organizations to have that need to be supported by facility managers and corporate real estate. So um, you have some organizations that are in adaptive situations. You have some that are in uh, um, kind of winner takes all markets where they could have a huge portion of the market and then someone else develops a better solution you have that particularly in the tech industry. But in other industries, you know, do we win the major project um, that, you know, provided 20 members or twenty people on our staff work? Will we win it? Well, then that's great. We'll have work for 20 people. If not, maybe we we'll want to have work for five people. And that need to scale up and scale down quickly is becoming more important as, you know, the accelerating pace of change, greater complexity in the market, more uncertainty. And so, end users want to have owners, they want to look for service models where they may be willing to pay extra for the ability to flex up and down. That's a difficult challenge hub operator that can offer that degree of scale because you're sourcing the space out on a maybe an individual or a small team basis. If you're a multi-site owner, steps would say, hey, what's your pain? Your pain is, as an end user core organization, is that You don't want to be stuck with a lot of fixed costs if things go against you. You want to be able to scale up and scale down rapidly. So um, there's examples in the market in Denmark where they um, we have a company Jutane which says you give us a month's notice, uh, we can move you into one of our other sites. Um, at no charge, where you can um, get a bigger space or a smaller space, and we could actually help you manage that insecurity that could emerge. So, that's some of those aspects that come into play.
1: Particularly, did the White Book It's mm-hmm. on the new ways of working. Could you talk to us a little bit about
0: that? You know, what we look at is when we talk about the future of work, you you have okay, how is work and work processes developing in the future? What are the future of the workforce? And so this is like demographic issues, aging, the millennials, things like that. Um, What is the nature of the workplace? And how is that developing both digitally and physically? And so when we started talking about, okay, how are work and work processes developing? Um, And one of the aspects is, you know, notions of technological development and disruption and organizational agility. Many companies need resilience. They need to manage costs. So they want to understand and shift as many of the fixed costs they have into variable costs because that gives them greater control. Um, So you have this need for resilience and this need for agility. Technology is breaking down um, the barriers internally to organizations and externally to organizations. So those collaboration models that uh, I was uh, discussing before, ranging from uh, co-sourcing models to – I'm sorry, from – crowdsourcing models to co-sourcing models, even what we call mesh sourcing models, they enable um, that to be done easier. But it also is breaking the silos down within organizations. And that's because it's easier to understand you, how people are using things to develop services for how people are, are interfacing with, different, um, um, with each other and, and with the physical world around them and to share and monetize those resources so there's a lot of changes going on around that and it's enabling things like co-working um, which helps an organization to leverage the community better so an organization could say hey uh, we have a ton of extra space because most uh, offices half of our desks are empty at any given time and we may have surplus capacity in our workplaces and why do we need to have a gym in our building that costs money and no one uses it anyways why can't we use the, uh, the neighborhood gym, organize a discount related to that? And now all these things can be organized through an app. So leveraging the community, leveraging the neighborhood, and breaking down this notion that everything has to be in-house at one site uh, and that we have to own it all uh, is being changed by this um, freedom from ownership um, notion and this idea that we can leverage the community and resources more efficiently and more effectively facility managers um, have to understand in corporate real estate is, you know, to what degree do they want to be open to the community? How do they monetize the assets um, that they have? You know, you have apps like Liquid Space and things like that. They could, you know, offer the opportunity for their employees to work at different locations, to be inspired, that maybe have the better offices or, or project rooms or war rooms for doing their work than, than others have. So that's a key aspect. There's this aspect around technological development. And you can see that going around so in Europe, United States, North America, and, and Asia, where you have the automation of labor on. And so you're seeing that occur, particularly start talking about the cognitive and AI revolution, that these are going to impact how work is organized, work processes, and what and who are the future talents. So the expert of today can quite easily be disrupted and become, if you want to call it, the, you know, the future average person. So that notion of talent. So organizations need resilience, but individuals need resilience as well because you could be disrupted by Watson, by Watson, for example, or another AI system, robotic process automation. All those aspects can come in and change the way you work. So um, how do you shift gears and prepare for the next future? Some people like working in a freelance market. And so you have the ones that do it very well and highly skilled, and they take um, good wages, and they're quite happy. Um, and then you have the ones that are called the precarious, uh, the precarious class. And those are the ones that you know are forced into it out of need. So it leads to a polarization in the market. Now, individualization um, – You know, the increasing due to global teams and providing all that stuff, that's increasing the demands on the organization to provide more individualized services, more um, expectation is with technology that, hey, you can understand me better. Um, You can provide more granular services to me. So how do we manage that um, and make sure that we provide the services that we need? Now, all these changes and shifts that I've been talking about are focusing and changing. The fifth aspect is this focus on health and well-being in the workplace. And what we could see is that, um, you know, we had this traditional cost of, hey, we have, you know, most of our spend, particularly talking to office environment with knowledge workers, um, 80, uh, 85% um, is on our employees, the rest is on technology and and the physical assets and things like that. Um The cost, particularly during the crisis, uh, managing costs within the in the built space, also managing costs on on the labor side, and it was all about cost cutting. But now, um, you know, with our society focusing on innovation, um, it's about come from what comes from employee engagement. Um, And if they're not they're not healthy, then it's a problem um, doing it. So reviewing whatever type of service and all the job is to make sure all the boxes are filled and oh is it filled with the right things those jobs are being automated right now by artificial intelligence and that person if they had a bad day at the office or at home and you know they had got a call from the school that their kid was misbehaving or whatever and they're distracted they could still kind of check the boxes and it didn't take much but if you have to be creative innovative Um, You know, with experts from different fields, that requires a different degree of cognitive input and that really requires that people um, have a good sense of wealth and well-being and they can actually uh, provide uh, good quality inputs and the like. But there's also the aspect um, when you focus on that is that you can create and drive absenteeism, um, higher turnover. And you could drive presenteeism, which is when um, a bad office design actually creates so much distractions that it makes people present, uh, but not there because they're um, constantly distracted by other aspects and so they're being much less productive. So that's that focus because you could actually turn the equation around um, the focus on, on actually investments on improving employee performance.
1: I actually have an interview lined up with the author of Healthy Workplace. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh Lee Stringer. Um but she definitely talked about health and well-being and um the the focus on providing that for people in in workplace because of all those reasons, right? I mean, and we'll get into that into that in that interview, but a lot of the things that you just mentioned um Absolutely, like absenteeism and and the lack of creativity while at work. I mean, the production level can definitely go down if if those are not the the focuses. Um, So I think that's that's super interesting.
0: There's all that aspect of people wanting to have, you know, I talked about wanting to have, you know, again, with individualization, user choice and personalization. How is it that I want to work? How is it I'm I'm most productive? In giving control to the user to choose the settings um, and spaces, you know, would like to work in and in best supporting that. So that's that whole activity-based working movement um, that's going on, which is always uh, important.
1: Somewhat goes hand in hand with the health and and wellness, um, because if you can't give people the environment, the sustainable environment to be uh health healthy and well within um sometimes the building itself is is not contributing to that right the the built environment is not doing that with sustainability and those behaviors around sustainability that can uh that can certainly contribute
0: we design workspace actually decidedly an un- un- unhealthy place to be
1: well thanks for sharing that about the new ways of working um, the uh the interview although it's been like super enjoyable to talk with you and enlightening as well i i do want to get from you what what's your recommendation to the listener to the owner listener right now um or anybody who's even working in facilities management would your i mean y- you study the future all the time is there anything that people companies should be paying attention to right now
0: you know, we talk about the future of work, future of workplace, uh, future of the workforce. But, you know, it's about, you know, translating in that into, you know, understanding what's the strategic ambition of the organization um, and trying to say, OK, was it that our employees, you know, are working together? How should they be working together? How are we supporting and, and fulfilling those functions and what are the facilities and technologies that they need to have? in order to do that. And so they start understanding the linkages between the um, the strategy, how they're working, their user journey during the day. And then they could start understanding what are the touch points by which they interface um, with digital uh, workspace and the physical workspace. They could actually do a lot to improve the well-being of their workforce, the productivity of their of their workers uh, without a dramatic investment either in fixed um, assets and understanding and using data and better processes around data to understand where is it that um, services are being provided to support the work that actually needs to get done and where are resources being misallocated to areas that may be nice to have but doesn't really help anybody uh, um, get their work done, and maybe re-prioritizing at the areas that are are neglected, and being intentional about that, and thinking about their fixed space in an intentional way, and that's something that that needs to be done.
1: Would there be any resources that you'd like to direct the listener to start going down that road of investigating? um what steps to to take next as they research how how they should be working i mean yes it is sort of this um let's look at us as an organization and our culture and the end users and how people are working to make sure that we're getting all the feedback that we need as well but is there is there any particular place where people should just you know, go look at whether it's ISS or,
0: um, yeah. Oh well, yeah. I mean, there, there's the white books that we produce with, with ISS. Um, there's five of them. They're available, um, online and, um, you know, the links could be provided. Um, uh, one place to find them is on betterworkplaces.com. Um, they're also available on the Institute's websites. There's also, um, uh, things done by, um, the International Facility Management Association, Workplace Evolutionaries. Um, But, you know, those are places and resources that people will look at to gain um, inspiration to holistic uh, approaches to to the workplace. And how is it that they can go about um, understanding how their end users work? So are they office bound? Are they out of the office? And what type of archetypes do they have? what are their touch points interfaces and user journeys throughout the day. So taking that service design service management approach to understanding their employees and then, um, uh, of what's being offered versus the satisfaction and, and doing a resource prioritization around it. There's uh, a lot that's out there.
1: If someone wants to learn more about you and, and what you're doing, particularly, how can they get in touch?
0: Uh, via the Institute, um, which is, uh, www.cifs.dk and uh, yeah there's uh, always open for uh, an email or a call
1: as much as I did I definitely enjoy talking about the future of work so I hope you get some really cool nuggets out of this one Please email me at brittany@constructor.com. I want to know how this podcast has helped you, even if you haven't implemented it yet. If you just want to learn more, just go ahead and email me. Again, that's brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-I-E at constructr.com. Next week, we'll be talking with Michael Bull, the host of America's Corporate Real Estate Show. We navigate through emerging trends as it relates to corporate real estate, like urban development, Internet of Things, driverless cars, and most importantly, we talk about training and development of employees. Tune in next week to listen to this interview. Don't forget to subscribe at constructor.com to get email updates from me. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so at iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave a review to show you support and let me know you're enjoying the podcast. I look forward to talking with you guys next week.